Welcome back, campers. That's Caitlin. And that's Genevieve. And I have a question for you, Caitlin, like I like to start these off with. (laughs) First part of this question, do you think there would be any circumstances under which you could see yourself making friends? And when I say friends, like somebody that you would go to Chili's and get the appetizer sampler with, Mm -hmm. (laughs) with a known serial killer and I mean known to you okay now that like mm-hmm. when you put it like going out with them mm-hmm. like that you were okay with other people knowing that you had a friendship with them I mean only if like they were like serial killers of child predators mm, fair like That's i i would res- i mean i'd support them mm-hmm. i'd send them some commissary money <laughs> if they got caught you'd want them to have that good ramen yes yes yeah. but mm. sitting with them out in public mm, oof. I don't, it's not like i'm a child predator so they wouldn't turn on me mm-hmm. but it'd be a little iffy yeah yeah that's completely fair and that leads me into the second part of this question mm-hmm. is but what if you were a survivor of being abducted by this serial killer? Could you then see yourself in a situation where you survived an abduction and then for whatever reasons, whether they were in prison, mm-hmm. they claim to have some sort of like, you know, transformation that you could then maintain a friendship with them do you think there's a world where that's possible for you i mean never say never Mm -hmm. but i don't know if i was a survivor (laughs) why would i want to see your ass again uh that's also fair because i think most people will never have to really think about that question (laughs) I mean, what did you do to me? I mean, you abducted me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eh. Yeah. Do I have to hate you? Like, no. Mm-hmm. But you abducted me. Yeah. Okay. And so, had plans. So, I'm... so we're saying it's at the very least iffy at this point. And yes. that's very fair. Feel free to change my mind, but don't. Mm. nobody abduct me. Okay. Oh, God. <laughs> nobody yes. abduct me. Nobody abduct Caitlin. That's the new title of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm not inviting anybody to test these theories out. And now we will pose this question to our listeners. And once you guys have made it to the end of the episode, you can decide the answer for yourself. Is it ever possible for a serial offender of heinous, violent crimes to undergo a true spiritual transformation within themselves? Or is something like faith just another obsessive fixation and ultimately a self-centering behavior to avoid accepting responsibility? According to the subject of our case today, he claims to have undergone a genuine spiritual transformation Coincidentally, on the very same day he knew the police were closing in, after he'd spent the last five years abducting, torturing, and murdering dozens of women. 
But he didn't arrive at this come-to-Jesus moment on his own. We're going to tell you all about a notorious murderer that the true crime world has largely forgotten about, who has since been dubbed the Chameleon Killer, a man named Stephen Marin. But more importantly, this is the story of a young woman who was abducted from a Kmart parking lot at gunpoint in her own SUV and not only avoided becoming the next victim of a deranged, sadistic killer, but found herself being handed his bullets. Lights out, campers. Margie Mayfield grew up in El Paso, Texas in the 1960s and was the middle child of three siblings in a wealthy and close-knit family. Her grandfather had made a fortune in the construction industry and Margie's family was well known among Texas high society. Margie's father had been a World War II pilot and was a man of deep Christian faith and Margie was very close with him. Margie herself was kind and beautiful with a bright smile and electric blonde hair. But tragically, when Margie was only 11, her father died in a terrible car accident and their family was shattered. Margie became a supportive backbone for the rest of her family and she even took on the responsibility of making dinners for everyone after school. As she got older, Margie became a true, quote, renaissance woman in high school. She was crowned homecoming duchess and won local pageants, but she was also an honor roll student and was an excellent tennis player and cheerleader. Despite her sweet American blonde looks, Margie was known for having a fiery personality. She went to the University of Arizona and majored in cultural anthropology, and when she eventually started dating her future husband, Bart Palm, it took him seven attempts at asking her out before she agreed. But in 1973, they got married, and Margie's mom cried over their engagement announcement because Bart was a divorcee. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I felt like that was (laughs) important to put in there. Just Margie's, you know, very proper, I'm sure lovely. Not this tainted man. God. Also, how often do we meet someone actually named Bart in the Mark. real word Bart? And you know what? I kind of love it. Bart. That's Bart. cute. Bart. It sounds like a Sesame Street character. It Bart. is. <laughs> is it? No, that's no, Bart. Bert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, are you dumb? <laughs> no, it is Bart. No, you're the dumb one. <laughs> is it that's, Bart Simpson? It's That is the Simpsons. <laughs> No, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm just saying the the famous oh, yeah. character is Bart it is Simpson. Bart Simpson, but it's Bert on Bert and Ernie. Yeah, Bert and Ernie, who were totally gay for each other. But that's another combo. They were taking baths with their rubber <laughs> duggy. Another combo for another time. <laughs> Different podcast. So we're agreeing that Bart. We're accepting of that name. Yes, Bart. despite being a divorcee. Mm-hmm. 
While he was alive, Margie's father had been a, a devout Episcopalian, and he prayed with his children every day. But after his death, Margie and the rest of her family remained religious on paper, more so than in practice. But shortly after she got married, Margie attended an evangelical revival. And she experienced there what Julie Miller later wrote in an interview with Margie for Vanity Fair as, quote, a spiritual interest so deep that she kept it from friends and family for fear they'd judge her. Margie would spend hours reading the Bible and various books on Christian living, and she wrote down dozens of Bible verses in a little black notebook that she took with her everywhere. In 1977, she had a baby girl, Noelle, and in 1979, she had a son named Miles. Margie absolutely loved staying at home with her children, and she did everything herself that kept their home running smoothly. In the spare time she did have, she was very involved in community volunteering. In the early 1990s, Margie Palm sat down for interviews with two popular Christian media programs. One was a TV segment called Heroes of the Faith and the other was a radio interview for the show Focus on the Family with Dr. James Dobson. Mostly, we're going to give you Margie's version of events as she gave them in great detail in these two Christian media interviews, because we think it's incredibly important to understand the lens through which Margie views the world and how it truly contributed to her survival. Most recently, in 2023, Margie sat down for an in-depth interview with Vanity Fair as a 72-year-old woman, which allowed her story to resurface in the public eye, and unsurprisingly, the world of true crime has taken a less, shall we say, biblical approach to analyzing Stephen Marin and the events that unfolded between him and Margie Palm. And we think it's equally important to examine those as well. Out of respect for Margie and the validity of her experience, we are going to give you her story first, as she told it in those early 1990s interviews. And then we'll see what accredited criminal psychology experts have since had to say. On December 10th, 1981, Margie was reading the internationally best-selling book, The Hiding Place, written by a woman named Cory Ten Boom. Cory was the sole survivor after her entire family was arrested by Nazis for hiding Jews in their home, and the Ten Booms were shipped to concentration camps, where they endured unspeakable horrors. After the war, Cory personally encountered and clasped the hand of a Nazi guard at a church meeting, whom she recognized as one of the many that had terrorized and tortured countless innocent people from the same camp where her own sister had been murdered. As Margie sat in the safety of her own home, being moved by Corey's words, like millions of other people around the world, she had no idea that the very next day she was going to empathize with Corrie ten Boom's story on a personal level more than she ever could have imagined. The next morning, Margie began the day as she always did, 
by kneeling down in her closet and prayed, Lord, whatever you want me to do today, I'll do for you. And before anyone is like, um, why was Margie kneeling in the closet? That is actually a very, very common practice in denominations of evangelical Christianity is the concept of having a prayer closet. So it doesn't have to be your literal closet, but the idea behind it is that you have an, a place in your home mm-hmm. that is devoted to nothing else but you being alone with God and praying. Hmm. So it's usually a small enclosed area and a lot of times people will have like scripture on mm-hmm. the wall, you know, things that they're praying for. It's kind of like, you know, some people have meditation rooms right. or similar, but it's a prayer room. So it's the concept is that you're there with the only intention to being getting in touch with God and praying the beginning of the day at any point in the day and so hmm. that's what she was All doing I think of is Carrie oh the like the movie yeah because doesn't she put her in like the closet oh underneath? yes yes like, yes mm-hmm. yep yeah huh. so it's just kind of like a distorted version of that and people like to use it as like oh well they're fucking weird for doing that but I don't think that that's fair because just like anything else when you believe something intensely you it's just a way of like I'm taking this seriously yeah so this is a special place where I'm getting I'm quieting my mind I'm focusing on praying and kind of like preparing for the day so my bathroom has the toilet because mm, that's the room I go to the bathroom in um yeah dedicate it for that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's where you collect yourself (laughs) yeah so in a elevated sense that's (laughs) what the prayer closet is (laughs) and that's what Margie did on this morning and that same day Margie had plans to do some community volunteering but for some reason she had a feeling that she would later describe as an immense spiritual heaviness weighing on her the whole day so much so that she actually ended up leaving the event early because it was so overwhelming on her way home at around two in the afternoon she decided to stop at a kmart in a busy part of san antonio to do some christmas shopping dozens of people were coming and going and she had no idea that the average looking man standing alone just outside of the store's entrance, had already been there for nearly three hours, watching and waiting. Margie had just made it to her SUV and was leaning into the passenger side with the door open to load up her shopping when she felt the cold bite of a gun press into her back. She turned around to see a man dressed in black with greasy hair and red eyes, crying and shaking like he was possibly coming down off of drugs and pointing a 38 caliber gun directly at her. He reminded her of a rabid dog and immediately Margie thought, you're going to die today. The man said, 
I'm the guy that killed the girl last night at Maggie's, and I've cut a man's heart out in prison, so you better do exactly what I tell you. Maggie's was a local restaurant a few miles away. Without thinking, the words spilled out of Margie's mouth. Do you know Jesus Christ? The man with the gun said, I don't want to know Jesus Christ, lady. Get in the car. And with the barrel of his gun, he shoved her down into the passenger seat and slammed the door. He climbed into the driver's side and ordered her to sit on her hands and said that he would kill her if she so much as moved a muscle. Ah! <laughs> oh my gosh. Now, um, first of all, the balls on this woman... I don't care who she's asking if he knows to ask him anything at this point when a gun is pointed in her face. Gosh. I'd be like, but can we get Chick-fil-A first? Like, I was actually on my way to get lunch. <laughs> I mean, you can come with me I if have you points. Want. Yeah. Like, I can get rewards. I'm on my way to Pilates, actually, but... Sorry, this is a bad time. <laughs> this is a bad time. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's terrifying. Uh, yeah, but... So we're from, this is a zero to NASA. This is a zero to dark NASA. Uh, in Black hole. Yeah, no. As oblivious people walked right in front of the car in the Kmart parking lot, Margie's body felt alive with waves of terror. And the man kept the gun dug into her side. He was crying and shaking and said that the police were chasing him because he'd killed a girl that morning and had another girl tied up in his motel room. So you take another girl. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Suddenly, he reached into the back seat and started slinging the Christmas presents Margie had just bought all around. He yelled that she was a sheltered princess and that animals were treated better than he was growing up. At this moment, Margie asked the man, What's your name? Stephen, he replied. Margie said, I'm going to put my hands on you and pray for you right now. Oh my god. And he said <laughs> Listen, I told my mom to listen to this episode. Shout out to my mom. This is something she would do. This is something I would not do. I mean when you have that much I would, faith. Because I would be peeing in my pants. Gosh. Oh. And he said, No, you're not. <laughs> I'd be like uncomfortable laughter. <laughs> Just like, I'm gonna pray for you. Uh, hold, hold up. No, you're not. With the loaded gun pressed in her side. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, Complete uncomfortable laughter. Yeah. <sighs> but in one swift motion, with the gun still pressed into her ribs, Margie would later say she felt as though a force greater than herself guided her hands out from beneath her. She pressed them firmly against either side of the man's head, and in a loud, clear voice, she exclaimed, I demand every demonic power in this man to leave my car, and I proclaim that before this day is over, he will be serving Jesus Christ. Just as quickly, the risk she had taken shocked her, and she slumped back into her seat with her head down. He said he would shoot her if she moved a muscle, but he didn't. The man stared open-mouthed at Margie and said, Oh my gosh, I'm in a car with a religious freak. 
Ironically, he was in no position to be calling anyone a freak. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What Margie had no idea of at this moment was that she was being held at gunpoint by 30-year-old Stephen Morin, who was currently on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list for the suspected murder, torture, and rape of more than 30 women across 10 different states. Oh my god. Wow. Just that same morning, he had narrowly escaped a SWAT team after he shot and killed a 21-year-old woman named Carrie Marie Scott in the parking lot of a local San Antonio restaurant. Police had managed to track him down to a sketchy motel where he was actively holding another woman named Pamela Jackson hostage. But he'd spotted cops closing in when he went to get a Coke from the motel vending machine and slipped out back of the motel through his tiny bathroom window. Oh my god. Miraculously, Pamela Jackson was rescued unharmed. He had then gotten on a bus that dropped him off near a Kmart parking lot, where he'd stood near the door and watched until Margie Palm walked by. She fit the profile of many of his other victims, pretty, fit, and blonde. But for some reason, she had completely caught him off guard with her religious, quote, freakiness. Despite the notoriousness of his crimes, not a whole lot is known about Stephen Marin's childhood. He was born in Providence, Rhode Island, and grew up in Florida, and his father was a mechanic who taught him a good bit about cars. We do not know how much of this is true, but Stephen claims that his mother sexually abused his younger brother and was also engaging in a sexual relationship with one of his friends his same age when he was a young teenager. So, if that's true, rape. Whatever actually happened in his childhood home, by age 14, Stephen Moran had stolen over 20 cars and had been sent to a notorious state-run juvenile reform school for boys that was full of horrible abuse doled out from both staff and inmates, escaped that reform school, been in a 100-mile-per-hour car chase from police, crashed and was sent to the hospital, escaped the hospital, and was finally caught and tried as an adult and sent to Florida State Prison, all by age 15. Tell me why live fast, die young. Literally, bye, girls. They went well. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what the hell? Like, Carl from Shameless. Oh my God! Seriously. Wow. Fifteen. Yeah, and as you're hearing this, immediately my mind just goes to the oh my God, what's his name? We did three. Pee-wee Gaskins. Pee-wee. Yes. The abuse, the juvenile mm-hmm. reform school that was full of abuse during a very formative time in his life. And we will never again oh. go into that much detail about the type of abuse at those places. But suffice it to say, it was any horrible thing you could possibly imagine. Hmm. If that is true, and I don't doubt that it was at that time, yeah, because it was very close to the same time that Pee Wee Gaskins was in juvenile reform school, also in the South. So, 
I have no doubt it was horrible. So, yeah. Things were not shaping him to be no. an upstanding citizen. He was not being reformed. No, he was not. He was being pushed to go on a 100 mile per hour car chase. Ugh. So, this is the moment where we feel a lot of empathy for baby Stephen Moran. For a child. Yes, and say someone should never have to ever ever have to experience any of those things as a child and that at this point in his story he is a victim Uh, I just I hate that I feel like that part of people's stories Mm -hmm. because again we have that hawk's eye view Mm. is skimmed over and that we forget that two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. That we can be outraged by the the pain that they go on to inflict upon innocent people. And that can be tr- just as true as the fact that we can be outraged that when they were an innocent child, mm-hmm. they had abuse and horror and pain inflicted upon them. And we can be enraged at the people that did that. And Yep. And that's the only way that we're going to break those cycles of abuse is, like, by... To discuss it. Yes. Like, tracing it back. Dissect it. Yes. Like, tracing it back to where it began. It doesn't excuse the responsibility, but it's okay to be outraged by it, even though they go on to be heinous pieces of shit. It's still okay. As a child, they didn't deserve. Yes. It's still okay to grieve what they went through as a child. And I I always hate having to talk about that because there is such a pattern. There's such a pattern. And there, yeah. Anyway, I'll step down off my soapbox <laughs> and continue. At 15, he went through all of this and... After he was paroled from prison for the 100-mile car chase, his criminal behavior took a far more sadistic turn than car theft. He began abusing drugs and assaulted a girlfriend, then killed her cat and delivered its body in a box to her work office. In 1976, while married to a different woman, He lured his sister's 14-year-old friend to his house by telling her that his sister was there and needed her help. Then he tied her up and gagged her and sexually assaulted her with the TV blaring for six hours. When he finally removed the gag, the young girl said to him, You just need someone to care about you. You're just hurt. Morin ultimately fled town that day, but before he did, incredibly, he cut her loose and let her run. And now the escalation station has hit. Yep. Now my sympathy Mm -hmm. is no longer there. (laughs) There's always that moment where it's like... I'm sorry to compare it to Harry Potter because oh. we say escalation station all the time. <laughs> Are we talking? Yes. <laughs> so it makes me think of platform nine and three quarters mm-hmm. where there's this wall there and they just run through it. Yeah. And, and what they... is it? The second movie mm-hmm. when Ron and Harry run through and just hit that wall? <laughs> yeah. That's where I'm at. 
And that's what most normal people are at. Like mentally, you see that wall. Maybe you think about hurting someone because of what has been done to you and you stop because you go, oh, I actually would never do that to another living being. What I got, I did not deserve. Therefore, no one else deserves that. Yes. Except there is that percentage of people that we end up talking about on true crime podcasts that run headfirst through that wall. And that's what Stephen Morin just did. So the grieving over the abuse and the unfairness of his childhood, that's done now. Well, he eventually ended up in Las Vegas, where he met and married a school teacher named Sylvia. Sylvia believed his name was Robert Ireland. This would actually turn out to be Stephen's M.O., and the press would eventually give him the nickname The Chameleon. But he never gained pop culture fame. (laughs) The same way that personalities like Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer did. Because he relied on disguises and all sorts of different backstories depending which state he was traveling in to disarm his victims. While he lived with Sylvia in Las Vegas, he developed multiple aliases and used them to hunt attractive white women, mostly in their teens and 20s. He would make them at ease around him by playing the sympathetic character, similar to what Ted Bundy did, and then would tie them up, torture and rape them, and then murder them. He would steal their cars, IDs, and various possessions then discard their bodies in shallow graves or seedy motels. By the time police would find a body, he would have already shed his disguise and assumed a different alias in a completely different state. In January 1980, Sylvia went into labor with her and Stephen's son. The very same day, 18-year-old Susan Belote went missing. Her body was found brutalized in a remote area of Utah, and it took months for her to be identified. In June of that same year, a 19-year-old young woman named Cheryl Daniel believed that she was dating a single young man named Andrew Ireland. Not very original with the lot, like... No, certainly not. He's also, also like, probably art Irish, like of Irish says. He's, like, he's just like, Andrew Ireland. Ireland, that makes sense. But also, uh, if you're like going for a name, like go for Smith or like, you know, something. Yeah. I don't know. Here I am giving advice to To (laughs) criminals. (laughs) She went missing and was found six months later, dead from a gunshot wound and dumped in the Utah desert. A bank card had been dropped near her body with the name Stephen Morin. Mm, Dumbass. What a dumbass. Stay stupid, killers, please. And if at this point y'all are like, why have we not heard of this guy? Don't worry. It gets worse. After he murdered Cheryl Daniel, one of Cheryl's close friends named Sarah Pisson was approached where she worked at a gas station by a young man who said his name was Robert Generoso. It was Cheryl's first time meeting him when he asked her out. Or so she thought. She declined the invitation to go on a date with massive air quotes Robert, but this did not deter him. He continued to ask her out and she continued to decline. And at this point, Robert, who was actually Stephen Marin, couldn't stand it. 
he began stalking Sarah and would constantly leave her disturbing messages at all hours of the day and night. In many of these messages, Sarah firmly believes that she could hear the sounds of people being tortured in the background. Miraculously, Sarah never became one of his murder victims, but she has since said, I will never be without a gun. I have a 45 next to me now, another gun in my vehicle, and a rifle by my bed. And to that I say, good on you, Sarah. Snaps. Mm-hmm. At the same time that he was abducting and murdering women, Stephen Moran seemed to take pleasure in creating bizarre games of manipulation and control at the same time with other women whom he did not kill. One time, he convinced a woman in Buffalo, New York to drop her life, sell all her possessions, and accompany him in a van on a cross-country road trip. Before they left, he had her help him line its entire interior with thick carpet. Years later, she would realize in horror that she had unknowingly helped a serial killer soundproof his murder van. In 1981, the same year he would later abduct Margie Palm from the Kmart parking lot, he went to Denver, Colorado and asked a young woman out on a date. She accepted and the two of them spent a few hours playing video games. Immediately after this, he picked up a 23-year-old woman and school teacher named Sheila Whalen. He strangled her to death, checked into a motel, dumped her body on the bed, and turned the TV on, then left. He was also known to give his victims small gifts, like a pair of earrings that he'd pull out of his pocket, then murder them a few moments later. Now, Incredibly, the morning that he fled from the SWAT team after shooting Carrie Marie Scott had not been his only close run-in with the police in the last year. He had been arrested twice, both times under different aliases, once in California and once in New York, in California for brandishing a weapon, and in New York for loitering with the purpose of engaging in a deviant sexual act. In California, he made bail and disappeared. In New York, he actually got processed and fingerprinted, but since the alias he had used did not show up in the system attached to any violent crimes, they let him out with a trial date and a promise to appear. And you can imagine how that went. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Bye. I would say that that's like a fault of the times, but mm-hmm. they still do that shit. Oh, 100%. Gosh, dang. Yeah, 100%. And now we've come full circle. Back to Margie Palm. Held at gunpoint in her own SUV in a Kmart parking lot with one of the most dangerous serial killers in American history. And she just laid her hands on him and prayed. Oh, God. After he <laughs> refused. After he'd been like, oh, no. No, 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 At first, Moran accused her of trying to con him by pretending to be religious. But Margie insisted that she wasn't. She pointed out that her back seat was full of sermon cassette tapes 
from a popular televangelist named Kenneth Copeland and worship music tapes. And she showed him her little black notebook filled with all of her handwritten Bible verses. Margie would later say that after she'd put her hands on Stephen's head, it was like the terror she had been seized by completely dissolved and she was overwhelmed by an indescribable feeling of peace and love for him. After Margie had managed to convince him that her faith was not a con, Stephen said to her, I don't know who you are, but I think I just want to go talk to you. And with that, he started the car and took them through a Whataburger drive <laughs> So not Chick-fil-A, but... <laughs> a Whataburger. A Whataburger drive through mm-hmm. where he told the attendant, My girlfriend and I will take two Cokes. He then drove them to a parking lot in a wooded area near a 7-Eleven gas station, and it was there that they sat sipping Cokes and talking for the next four and a half hours. Oh my god. That's easy to just say in a sentence, but four and a half hours is an eternity. Look, I could sit in the car for four and a half hours and talk to you. Mm-hmm. But I'm not afraid that you're going to kill me I mean, at yeah, any yeah, point, yeah. you know? But, like, even, like, just, like, ah. a stranger, a random person. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That's that's a long time. Ah. I'd probably ask about the weather at least 20 mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Margie told Stephen that she'd believed she had been sent there that day to tell him about God's love. And for a while, Stephen insisted that he didn't believe there was a God, only a devil. And that even if there was a God, he would never love Stephen after all of the horrible things he had done. He was also adamant that he did not want to have to go back to prison. And he was planning to kill himself that day to avoid being arrested. Ugh. Stephen said he had done many things he hadn't wanted to do, and willed himself not to do them, but that he'd always be overwhelmed by his extreme hatred and resentment towards women, and couldn't resist it. He said that his mother had hated him and abused him, and in turn, he'd hated her for it, which had pushed him into a downward spiral of abusing drugs and inflicting sadistic violence on women. Margie told Stephen that he had a quote, satanic stronghold around him, and and that he was already in a prison of hatred and fear, and that if he took his own life without accepting Jesus Christ as his personal savior, he would certainly suffer eternal torment in hell for all eternity, a fate far worse than prison. Hmm. Now, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with what they're talking about or with evangelical Christianity in general. We're going to give you the Cliff Notes version so that you have context for the possible significance of Margie and Stephen's conversation to the mind of someone like Stephen Moran. A fundamental belief of Christianity is that when God first created the world, it was perfect. There was no disease, no evil, no death, nothing. And the first two human beings he placed on earth, Adam and Eve, were incredibly close with God. Their only boundary was that they could not eat fruit from one tree in the beautiful Garden of Eden, fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they did. Upon disobeying God, evil and death entered the world. 
This meant that God was separated from his creation because God cannot exist in the same place where there is evil and wickedness. So, several thousand years later, along came Jesus, who was born from a virgin named Mary, and who is believed to be God's son, perfect and without sin. Up until Jesus, the people who worshipped God had been sacrificing animals to atone for their sins, but Jesus, God's only son, was the ultimate sacrifice to pay for the sins of the entire world in one fell swoop. In the end, Jesus was executed by Roman officials as a way to throw a bone to local religious leaders who utterly despised him. But after three days of being buried in a tomb, Jesus rose from the dead, symbolizing that he had conquered sin and death. Christians hold the belief that in order for someone to go to heaven when they die, they must acknowledge that Jesus is God's one and only Son, who was sacrificed for the sins of the entire world, and they must accept this gift of forgiveness in order to be healed of the broken relationship with God caused by sin, or as we know it, all of the bad stuff that human beings do to one another every day. This is usually accomplished by the individual saying a prayer, and if that prayer is sincere, that person will be filled with God's Holy Spirit. Their sins are forgiven, and their ticket to heaven is sealed. Anyone who does not accept Jesus as their Savior will go to hell when they die, period. It doesn't matter who they are, what they've done, or when they choose to accept this forgiveness. All that matters is that they do. Again, that was an incredibly dumbed-down version, but you get the gist. And that brings us back to Stephen Marin who, after so many years of inflicting incredible pain and suffering on dozens of innocent people, and knows the depravity of his actions, is being given, in a sense, a way out of assuming the responsibility for those crimes by a sincere young woman who sees him as a human being afflicted by demonic forces of evil that he needs to be freed from, and separating him from these crimes he has committed. According to all the ranting Stephen Moran has done, it was the abuse he experienced at the hands of his mom and in juvenile detention that made him hate women and made him into the killer he had become. Finally, someone was validating how he'd felt all along, he also knew that the police were rapidly closing in, and either way, his chameleon days were over. Unsurprisingly, he wanted to hear more. But at this point in the day, at 6.30 p.m., people were going to start noticing that Margie Palm wasn't turning up where she was supposed to be. Stephen escorted Margie to a phone booth next to the 7-Eleven and, still pressing the gun into her side, instructed her to call her husband, Bart, and let him know that she was okay. When Margie heard Bart's voice, the wave of calm that she had been riding all day collapsed, 
and fear gripped her that she really might never see her family again. Mm. Margie told Bart that she was out shopping and would be home later, but he asked her why her voice sounded different and if she was sure everything was all right. Margie asked if he could please handle making their children's dinner, giving them baths, and putting them to bed, and she'd be home soon. She hoped that he would pick up on the unusualness of her request and realize that something was very wrong. Because in the 10 years they'd been together, she had never once asked him to handle their children's nighttime routine. Jesus, give me strength. Margie, you're a good woman. Margie, you are a literal saint. Oh, man. I don't know what I would say to my husband to make him, you know? My brain is struggling to compute that Margie actually thought that by asking her husband to put their children to bed and make them dinner, that he would realize she was most likely in a situation that might result in her being murdered. (laughs) But, wow. Wow. That is wow. Margie. Interesting. Sainthood immediately. Well, Bart chalked Margie's slightly odd phone call up to pre-Christmas jitters, and they hung up. Oh, my God. The moment they got back in the car, Stephen could sense her fear had escalated, and he in turn became immediately agitated. Whether or not she consciously realized the significance of not showing fear in the presence of a sadist, Margie knew that when she remained calm, it had a similar effect on Stephen, and she prayed silently over and over to be able to present a calm demeanor to her captor. And it worked. Mm. Stephen said that he was going to keep driving so that they could continue talking. But first, she needed to go into the 7-Eleven and get him some beer, cigarettes, and a paper. His face in the full force manhunt for him was on the front page of every newspaper in the 7-Eleven. But Margie made it a point not to read any of it so that she would not have any details of the horrible things he'd done in her mind. Mm. She purchased the items and returned back to the car. Later, when asked in an interview why she did not make the obvious choice to raise the alarm, she would say that she simply felt so convicted that she was supposed to continue talking with Stephen about her faith that she'd never even considered it. Wow. Wow. Stephen drained several cans of beer while he rifled through her tapes, annoyed that all she had was sermons and worship music and flinging tapes into the back seat along with empty beer cans until he unearthed a ride like the wind by Christopher Cross. It was apparent to Margie that Stephen viewed the song as a sort of personal anthem, and he rewound the tape and played it over and over, singing along loudly. It is the night, my body's weak, I'm on the run, no time to sleep. I've got to ride, ride like the wind, to be free again. I was born the son of a lawless man, Always spoke my mind with a gun in my hand. Live nine lives, gun down ten. Gonna ride like the wind. Mm, you know he loved that. <laughs> I mean... I watched later in a 
breakdown that a psychologist did of mm-hmm. this case where he's talking about how Stephen Moran did this and he just says in a deadpan dry voice he's like it would have been far more appropriate if he'd played Cindy Lauper's I see your true colors <laughs> shining through oh gosh that's gonna be stuck in my head but my 2024 mind after having watched salt burn I was a beat like better on the dance floor. Better on the dance floor. <laughs> I better not feel the mood. <laughs> oh God. <clears throat> At Margie's suggestion, they began driving on the freeway towards Colville, Texas. She would later say in an interview that she'd had a vision of an FBI road blockade on the interstate that Stephen initially suggested they take. And she was overwhelmed with the sense that this would be disastrous. And she told Stephen this, who was once again stunned that Margie would suggest a way that would actually help them avoid the police. And he asked if she was an angel. Margie said, no, but could they listen to one of her sermon tapes about the love of God by a famous evangelist, Kenneth Copeland? And... We're not going to go into a huge thing about Kenneth Copeland, but I do want to point out that Kenneth Copeland essentially is a joke. I don't believe Margie Palm is a joke, but Kenneth Copeland had kind of two things that were his platform, which was rebuking the devil. Mm -hmm. And basically the devil was anything that just stood in your way of success and giving money to Kenneth Copeland. So that that was Kenneth Copeland. But this was a time where... You were not going to get sermon tapes from someone that was like, genuinely like, I love everyone and I just want to read the Bible and do good because they didn't have the money. It was people like Kenneth Copeland who were those mega televangelist personalities that shows like... Just another version of snake oil. Exactly. Oh my God, what is that show? Um, The Righteous Gemstones that is really good on HBO Max and it's about a televangelist family and they very much give kenneth copeland vibes it's they're very aware that they're preying on the christian community and they're gonna say the right words to rake in a shitload of money so that was kenneth copeland but he was popular because he had money and he could put out tapes so yeah And Stephen listened intently to this tape for a while, then abruptly paused the tape and told Margie that he had a young son who he loved more than anything, and that he never wanted his son to go through in life what he'd experienced himself. Margie asked Stephen if he found out that his son had committed the same crimes that he himself had committed would he still love him? And would he even be willing to die so that his son wouldn't have to pay the price for everything he'd done wrong? I would die for my son, Stephen said without hesitation. And Margie replied that Jesus had already done the very same thing for Stephen by dying for his sins so that he did not have to go to hell when he died. Stephen said to Margie, You know what? You've been preaching to me all day, but I finally understand what you're talking about. 
Suddenly, he pulled the car off onto the shoulder of the freeway, raised his hands above his head, and exclaimed, Jesus, I'm sorry for everything I've ever done. Please forgive me. I want to go to heaven. After saying this, he completely broke down sobbing, and Margie held him in her arms as cars whizzed past on the freeway. He then told Margie that he didn't want to do this anymore, this being ruthlessly murdering, we would assume, and he asked her to hold out her purse, into which he dumped all of the bullets out of his gun. Then he announced that he needed to go to Fort Worth, Texas, and lay that same gun on the desk of the evangelist Kenneth Copeland. Once again, Margie felt overwhelmed by a feeling she believed to be from God, that if they could continue driving 65 more miles to the city of Kerrville, there would be a bus station, even though she had never been there or knew if this was true, and there she could buy Stephen a single ticket to Fort Worth. On their way, they stopped at a bank, and Margie took out $300 and handed it to Stephen, which once again made him dissolve into tears. They also passed a steakhouse, and Stephen told Margie that under different circumstances, he'd be taking her there on a date. When they got to the bus station, they sat in the car and ate McDonald's and he asked Margie if she would please come with him to give his gun to Kenneth Copeland. She graciously declined and said that it was important she got home soon to her children, but she reassured Stephen that God would be with him. She handed him a one-way ticket to Fort Worth and her little book of handwritten scriptures, and Stephen asked her permission before giving her a hug and a kiss on the cheek goodbye. He then pulled out of his pocket a single dangly earring with a green stone and a cross on it and placed it into her hand. Julie Miller later wrote for Vanity Fair that, quote, As the bus pulled away, Marin waved from a window with a big smile, like a kid on his way to summer camp. Before the bus had even pulled out of the station, Margie leapt back into her SUV, locked its doors, and burst into tears of relief. (laughs) Caitlin is unwell. What the heck? How, like, no matter how many times I've had to read that section over and over again as I wrote it, head to toe chills. Because whatever you believe about God, Margie Palm just put a serial killer on a bus who hugged and kissed her goodbye and waved to her like he was on his way to summer camp with his bullets in her purse. You know, though, she gave the perfect analogy of like, Mm -hmm. would you die for your son? Yeah. That is what Jesus did for you. Mm -hmm. And he's like, it clicked. Mm-hmm. Damn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you imagine? No. But the degree of respect 
that I have for her holding it together, doing what she did. That is incredible. (laughs) It is actually incredible. And it wasn't like she just held it together for five minutes, 15 minutes, an hour. This is an entire day. And I can't even remember where I read this exactly. Multiple sources mentioned this. But at one point, she felt so secure in her conviction that she was supposed to be in that car with Stephen Morin that when they were driving on the interstate, she actually fell asleep for a while. And you could say, well, that was just because her body had been alive with adrenaline and it finally just like forced her to shut down for a minute. But even if that is true, if it allowed her to then wake back up and remain calm and be like, okay, Stephen, we're going to put you on a bus. You're going to go put your gun on that crazy obedient. Yeah, you got this. And then he's like, aren't you coming with me? Uh, I'm good. I appreciate you inviting me. I would love to. It's not my vibe. Yeah. I would love to so much. My social battery is a little drained. You know, my husband probably wouldn't approve because he doesn't even know that my kids need to eat at nighttime. (laughs) He's never bathed them, so... You know, Steven's like, oh my god, girl, I totally get it. (laughs) Oh my god. I just... Um, this is because of everything that we've read about the pattern of these killers. This is one of the most astounding stories to me because this isn't like he remember how like Israel Keys was when he was kind of fumbly at the beginning Mm -hmm. and hadn't actually killed anyone yet. And then he attempted and then kind of got talked out of it. We are talking about someone who has had a system of planned, sadistic abduction, torture, and kill for years. And that she... And he literally killed someone. That morning. Yeah. Yeah. That morning. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm not an expert about the psychology of killers, but... It is true that he knew the police were closing in. Right. But in my simple-mindedness, I tend to think if you know that, wouldn't you be that much more likely to be unhinged? Yeah. You know, like, and not just receptive. Which is like, I mean, he was crying Mm -hmm. and stuff. Yeah. I... It's... I don't know. Yeah, you can't deny that that it is uncanny, regardless of what you believe. Yeah. It's it's insane. It was now around 10.30 p.m., and back in San Antonio, a frantic Bart Palm had called the police and said he was afraid his wife may have been abducted by Stephen Morin. Shortly after, he'd had the phone call with Margie, where he chalked her trembling voice up to Christmas jitters, He'd turned on the news and seen that a national manhunt was underway for a deranged rapist and serial killer who had murdered a woman in their own town just that morning. And his wife, Margie, perfectly fit the profile of his many, many victims. He was kicking himself for not realizing earlier that Margie's phone call may have been a desperate attempt to tell him that she was in danger. 
Police took his call seriously, and when Margie finally pulled into the driveway around midnight, she was met with a sea of law enforcement. At first glance, Margie appeared fine, and Bart's initial terror and relief melted into fury when he saw her smiling. Oh, gosh. He's like, you bitch. (laughs) How could you do this to me? Oh, gosh. He ripped open the door of the SUV and demanded, where the hell have you been? (laughs) That is fair. That is fair. I I would do the exact same thing to Josh. Like being worried and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like that is so normal for when you have extreme anxiety, when they turn out being totally fine you're like immediate you're switch like, over to anger you're like i wish you'd been in a car accident now <laughs> because that's what i, I was prepared oh. for but i i get bart in this moment oh yeah, yeah yeah i've seen some things that have been like oh my god this is actually abusive and not okay and i'm like no this is normal this is love universal this is love like to immediately be pissed off at your spouse for being okay like they <laughs> made you worry exactly that you were dead exactly bart cares <sighs> we'll put that on a t-shirt yes. bart cares <laughs> <laughs> oh so after that margie thrust the newspaper at bart that she'd gotten from the 7-eleven with steven's face on the front And when she opened her purse and made Bart peer inside at the pile of bullets, his knees buckled. At first, Margie was nearly giddy with excitement as she tried to tell her husband and police that the man she'd been with had accepted Jesus Christ as his personal savior. But as the FBI swarmed her car for evidence and began hammering her with questions, the gravity of the fate she'd narrowly escaped hit her like a freight train and an overwhelmed Margie suddenly announced, I need a drink. (laughs) (laughs) If Margie was not already an icon, icon 2.0. I need a drink. (laughs) Somebody get her a drink, demanded an officer. (laughs) Then that's the officer you want. Clutching a martini glass in hand. (laughs) (laughs) I need this on a shirt. (laughs) Yes. Margie was driven with Bart in a squad car to the police station, where first she positively identified Stephen Morin out of a group of 15 or so photographs. Margie, who had never in her life even heard the term mass murderer, was then presented with a table full of horrendous crime scene photos of the woman who had been tortured, mutilated, and murdered by the man she just embraced and put on a bus. Oh my god. She learned about how his M.O. was to change his identity and physical appearance with haircuts and facial hair and hop around from state to state with new identities, where he would befriend and con women by gaining their sympathy or easing them into a sense of friendship and emotional intimacy before a horrific attack. And she felt like she'd been cracked with a baseball bat. Gosh. To never have heard that to even like have that concept of a type of person in your mind and then suddenly you have a table full of horrific images in front of you and you just spent all day talking with him and this is I feel like we're so hardened in the day and age that we live in because of things we see in movies and tv Mm -hmm. shows 
we really have become accustomed to seeing depictions of crime scenes and mm-hmm. you know that that degree of horrible things that human beings are capable of doing to one another but margie strikes me as having this sort of beautiful innocence mm-hmm. that doesn't mean she's stupid or not strong no. but that she has a degree of innocence that allowed her to look at Stephen Moran and see a human being and not everything that he'd done and that if that was what allowed her to get through the day then wonderful but now the shock Mm, of being faced with all of that I I can't even imagine like at least she had a martini glass in her hand I hope it was full I hope it was strong. (laughs) I hope it was strong. But that's, I don't, I don't think they should have done that to her. Yeah, I don't know. I don't agree with showing her that, like, what what was the point in showing her the pictures? I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know. But I think at that point, you think about how much they'd been trying to hunt down this guy. Yeah. How much they were eager to get him. And they were just like, look, look, like, this is who you were in the car with. Do you realize how big of a deal it was that you survived? And that's, that's I would assume, more what was going through their mind yeah. than you need to see this so that you can identify this person. Boy. But either way, that mm. would have been very traumatic for anyone. Oh, wow. Well, as you can imagine, she was seized with fear that her entire day spent with Stephen Morin had been one of his games, and that if she told the police his whereabouts, she'd invite his wrath and he'd come after her family. Mm. She panicked and said she and Stephen had gone separate ways in the San Antonio Kmart parking lot. Based on what they knew of Morin, Police knew this likely wasn't true, but Margie was so distraught that they decided not to press her further that night. Back in the safety of her own home, Margie broke down crying and told Bart everything that had really happened. Immediately, Bart notified the police that the bus carrying Stephen Warren to Fort Worth would be stopping briefly at Austin at 3.30 a.m., and it was now 2.45 a.m. Incredibly, when skeptical FBI dispatched a local plainclothes policewoman to the bus station, they were astonished to find a completely serene Stephen Morin sitting on a bench and reading Margie's little book of scriptures. His gun was empty, and he made no attempt to resist being arrested. Mm. In April 1982... As his indictment was being read at his murder trial for the murder of Carrie Marie Scott, Stephen leapt up and declared, Before the jury and before God, I plead guilty. When asked if he understood this would mean he would either be spending life in prison or receive the death penalty with no chance to negotiate, he replied, The only plea bargaining I've done, Your Honor, is with my Lord. Prior to this, he had actually requested to be his own co-counsel and represent himself. If you guys remember, Ted Bundy had also done this. But the judge denied his request. Over the course of four separate murder trials, 
Stephen's entire defense hinged on the claim that he had found Jesus Christ, and he would always bring his Bible with him into the courtroom. Incredibly, he was somehow permitted to question potential jury members prior to his trial for the strangulation murder of 21-year-old Jaina Bruce. He would ask them, Do you believe that a person, despite what an individual's past has been, no matter how bad, can be sincere and changing? Jaina Bruce's body had been found unceremoniously dumped in two feet of water with ligatures cutting into her face and throat. Despite his changed man persona, over the course of four separate trials, four juries unanimously sentenced Stephen Moran to death for the murders of Carrie Marie Scott, Jaina Bruce, Sheila Whalen, and Cheryl Ann Daniel. After one of these sentencings, a jury foreman commented, We could accept that he was a born-again Christian, but we didn't go along with it to the point where we felt he wouldn't kill again. During the trials, one judge remained so wary of Stephen Marin that he kept a loaded 357 Magnum on his bench. I'm sorry. I... This must have been in the depths of Texas. What in the <laughs> hell? First of all, when I hear that, I immediately think of Israel Keys and him leapfrogging no. over the bench. I literally can hear it. No. And grabbing go, the gun. <laughs> yeah. That does not seem like safe practice, first of all. Don't you but, have, like, deputies, sheriffs? Yeah. Like- but it just goes to show you that that the degree of fear that when you I would this judge had to have seen the photos had to know what this person is capable of that you felt the need to have a gun visible on your bench that is terrifying maybe he had it for everyone like parking tickets (laughs) 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 it's Texas who knows you jaywalked yeah watch yourself yep 357 magnum always right there (laughs) your dog was barking at night a little too loud Mm -hmm. but yeah that's pretty scary most law enforcement as well as bart palm believed that stephen morin's born-again christian display in the courtroom was his way of trying to pull off the ultimate con and weasel his way out of the death penalty. But when sentenced with death and given the opportunity to appeal, he refused. And Bart would later say that he begrudgingly came around to Margie's state of mind that Stephen's spiritual transformation might be the real deal. But while in prison, a sheriff's deputy did find a stash in a pair of Stephen's shoes that had 50 bucks, razor blades, a list of names and addresses, and a Texas driver's license. But Stephen said he just needed these things for protection. He also repeatedly refused to speak with prosecutors as they were attempting to clear up dozens of other murders for which he was a prime suspect. So, Do with that what you will. 
During the four years he spent on death row, Margie maintained contact with Stephen, so much so that when he was moved to the Texas State Penitentiary, he would collect call the Palms home once or twice a week. My God, that is a lot. Once or twice a week? Once a year would be like, I'd need therapy for the rest of my life. A week? I'd be like, baby boy, I did my work on you. You found your way. <laughs> I'll lend you done. to Jesus. Call him. Oh, call him. <laughs> call Jesus. Period. <laughs> like, ooh. But God. Ooh. Literally. <laughs> God. <laughs> oh. If Bart answered, Stephen would try to talk to him like they were old pals. But Bart would only say, I'm fine, Stephen. Here's Margie. <laughs> oh. Margie talked with Stephen at length about Christianity through phone calls, letters, and 15 total visits to prison to speak with him in person and read the Bible. Wow. Despite the compassion and, and encouragement Margie gave to Stephen, Warren, up until the day he was executed, the crime scene photographs she'd seen of his murder victims were never forgotten, and she always maintained that she firmly believed he was a dangerous criminal who could never be from behind bars. Mm. Well, that's fair. Mm. <laughs> and true, I would yeah. definitely say. Whether or not Stephen Warren was truly a born-again Christian is an incredibly touchy subject. For someone with faith as sincere in God's ability to love the unlovable as Margie, she believed he was. For years, she would only tell her story for churches and religious organizations because of the fear that people would think she was a Christian nut. Mm. And even in these church interviews, it's very apparent that the way she tells the story centers the power of God's love and Stephen's salvation in Christianese terms. Many of Stephen Warren's other surviving victims and psychology experts do not believe it was actually possible for him to genuinely change. Stephen Warren was a clinically diagnosed antisocial personality and widely believed to be narcissist. And mixed within his letters to Margie about how God's love had changed his life were random sprinklings of appalling narcissistic delusion. Ugh. In one letter he wrote, Quote, I don't feel bitter towards any of my wives, as I'm sure I was a big part of things going bad. Unquote. But then, in another letter, he wrote about how easily he could have escaped again in Fort Worth if he wanted to. Mm. But, quote, instead, I sat in the bus station for over three hours with a pocket full of bullets and an empty gun, awaiting whatever fate our Lord had in mind for me. He also claimed to not be responsible for even a quarter of the crimes he was accused of, which in total amounted to a suspected 48 violent murders committed in the states of Utah, Colorado, Nevada, Washington, Idaho, Indiana, Missouri, Pennsylvania, New York, Texas, and California. He was also highly interested in selling the rights to a book and a movie about his life. Hmm. Uh, no. I bet he was. 
According to the opinion of well-respected criminal psychology expert Dr. Todd Grand, he believes that Christianity could have just presented itself to Stephen Marin at a moment in his life when his back was against the wall and he was literally physically and mentally exhausted from trying to meet his needs through violent crime, stealing, and drugs. When looked at through the cold lens of psychology, Christianity for these types of individuals can just be another way for the narcissistic sociopath to live out fantasies of grandiosity and illusion and remove themselves from assuming responsibility. But on the flip side, many Christians claim that it's exactly when people are at the end of their rope and lost in evil that they cry out to God for salvation and experience true transformation. Unfortunately, though, that still leaves us with the uncomfortable question, where was God when Stephen Marin was murdering upwards of 40 of other innocent victims? Why did Margie survive that day when Carrie Marie Scott did not? Margie's daughter, Noelle, grew up and became a marriage and family therapist specializing in trauma. And in the last 10 years, she has encouraged her mom to begin writing about her experience and exploring the complicated realities of the trauma that she endured with Stephen Marin, not only that day in the car, but in the years that followed as she maintained open lines of communication with him. Margie said in her interview with Vanity Fair that she wishes now that at the time she'd had the vocabulary and understanding to use her influence over Stephen and encourage him to cooperate more with authorities about his other murder investigations. But regardless of whether not what happened with Stephen Moran was a genuine heart change or an opportunity taken advantage of. Margie Palm's incredible resilience and genuine compassion on a level most of us can't even begin to comprehend, which she attributes to her faith in God, is not something that we should dismiss. And that alone should be enough to keep us open and curious about the world that we cannot see. In regards to what her mom experienced on that day, her daughter Noelle says, I am of the opinion that I have no clue. Today, at 72 years old, Margie says, I do not and could not have answers, but I have a story. And there you have it, guys. That is the unbelievable story of Margie Palm and mm. her survival of being abducted by Stephen Moran. I guess all I have to say about the whole thing mm -hmm. is whether you believe or don't believe. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether he found Jesus or not. Yeah. When he said, do you believe that a person, despite what an individual's past has been, no matter how mm -hmm. bad, can be sincere and changing? Mm. Yes. 
Yeah. But guess what? God still, the jury, judge, like... Yes. You still deserve to be punished regardless yes. of, like... Yes. Mm-hmm. So, whether he changed or not, mm-hmm. he did deserve punishment. Yeah. And something else that I think is relevant to bring up is that as I have talked with people who I know that I would consider to be people of very deep spiritual faith Mm -hmm. in God that I have a lot of respect for who Mm -hmm. genuinely live out their faith and show true compassion for people and love and use their faith as a means to invite love for other people Mm -hmm. into their life instead of a weapon to condemn that saying Stephen Marin oh well even if he was a narcissist Mm -hmm. and that was the only thing that drove him to accepting Jesus because he then saw himself as part of a bigger narrative they would attempt to explain that by saying that even then in our limited understanding as human Mm -hmm. beings if we have faith that God sees the biggest picture, mm-hmm. the Falcon's eye view, things like narcissism, even when Stephen Marin saying like, oh, if I just follow this path, mm-hmm. yet fo- him following that path kept him from killing people. You know, so like, who are we to say, who are we to dismiss it and then be like, well, that was stupid and Margie Palm was delusional and like, God is it real and blah, 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 blah. So, and that's why I said that it doesn't matter what happened. The fact that there was enough bizarre coincidences Mm -hmm. that happened in that whole day, what went on to happen that Stephen Marin literally ceased killing people he was arrested without resistance he did not attempt to fight his death penalty sentence maybe he was i've i do believe he was a raging narcissistic sociopath but margie following her intuition following her faith no matter how weird way it got there, it got him off the street and it stopped him from killing people. So what does the rest of the rationalization matter? You know, like I completely agree. She survived. She felt a deep love and compassion Mm -hmm. for him. And why should she be faulted for that? No, Never. Like, she should never be faulted because she survived. She did what she had to do to survive. And that ability to show love and kindness to someone, Mm -hmm. even when she began to see, like, okay, I know this person is dangerous. Yeah. I mean, she knew it from the beginning when he put a gun in her side. multiple opportunities to escape Mm -hmm. him. Yep. Run him into the police. Yep. Yep. I mean, we could go down the list, but there was the McDonald's, the Whataburger, the 7-Eleven, the bank. I mean, the the phone call to her husband. She could have broke character and been like, I'm being abducted by the... You know, but 
I fully believe that it was her compo on a psychological level, mm -hmm. her ability to remain calm and composed. Yeah. That took away his, as we know, a sadist from all of his other crimes. Right. When somebody does not show fear and they do not give someone what they want, then that, forgive me, but that like, that fear elicits that arousal, mm -hmm. which then escalates the violence. She took that away from him immediately from the beginning and never gave it to him. And she maintained that an entire day. It's wild. It's wild. It's so wild. I will say, though, yeah. it feels so good to do a survival <laughs> story. I know. I, I know. Of No Margie, matter how she survived, yes, she survived she and survived. that's amazing. But I also, we do need to say that, like, anybody who was a survivor of his that mm -hmm. wasn't Margie, because Stephen Marin, he was dumb as hell and shot a whole lot of people and didn't actually kill them and they survived attacks from him thank god but many of those people have been like no he did not change and that is equally valid completely because you believe whatever you need to about that assailant to continue mm -hmm. on with your life and the people that do not have the chance to speak out it's a slap in the face to suggest that well margie had faith so yeah. she survived and you know if they just had more faith then no. they would have that's that's not how it works no that's not how it works and it's just part of that realm of things that we cannot understand and that the only way we can be okay with having faith is accepting that there's things we don't understand mm -hmm. and that is true and it is also true that those people were innocent they did not deserve to die Stephen Marin is a heinous piece of shit and deserved to be executed like he was and Margie Palm deserved to live as did every single other one of his victims so amen it's just I loved researching and writing this case because it made me wrestle with so many things mm -hmm. and I love I love what her daughter Noelle says I'm of the opinion that I have no <laughs> I clue that I have no clue um but it did make me think of the women in my life who go through life with this incredible unshakable faith that no matter what happens to them or the people around them mm -hmm. they believe that there is a purpose that people are worth fighting for no matter what they have done and people are worth loving and there's something to be said for that yeah but let us know what you think. Yes. And I don't even remember what the question was that we asked at the very beginning. Would you befriend a serial, mm. a known serial killer? Knowing of all the stuff that he'd done and having been abducted by him. So basically, if you were Margie, would you have continued the friendship? No. Oof. That's something that really continues to 
blow my mind is that what she went through, you know, and escaping that fate that she continued. Even from like a Christian viewpoint, Mm -hmm. like I don't dismiss her love or like her, um, kindness towards him. No. Like, but the, I, I the trauma that. But the, response like, that you inherently would have towards someone like that. Just, I, I mean, I can, well, it's so hard. Like, mm-hmm. I, of all the cases I've listened to, mm-hmm. read through, the thought of forgiving somebody. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm strong enough to do that. No. But, like, if I did get to the point of forgiving somebody, mm-hmm. like, I forgive you, but, like, yeah. that's it. Yeah absolutely like after that again it's god's problem yeah he it Mm -hmm. i'm not the judge Mm -hmm. yeah but that she accepted phone calls (sighs) she accepted letters she visited him in person was like okay with it yeah and i i do love this a bard is an underrated hero in all of this but that he was like knew that somehow that was important to mm-hmm. Margie to continue speaking with Stephen. But also he Bart was never a religious person. Mm-hmm. Like Margie was, you know, the depth of her faith is interesting to me that Bart has always just kind of been like, I support you, Margie, mm-hmm. but that's not me. And if Stephen Moran calls here wanting to talk about Jesus, I'm gonna be like, I'm fine, here's Margie. I mean Yeah. But he could have taken the stance of like, no, you're not talking to me. You know, obviously Stephen Moran couldn't do anything to her from prison. But it is interesting that he was just like, okay, you know, this is what's happening. And it's important to Margie. Or she wouldn't have gone to visit him. I bathe my children. I feed them every night. (laughs) Let me have this. Give this one thing to me. I mean, truly. And you never know how her continuing to talk to him kept him from you know, acting out in prison. Like, you, I don't know. I you mean, just, you never know. It's questions we will never know. Or how, in some sort of way, it could have contributed to her own healing journey and being to live with what yeah. she went through. We Look, just. I'm also in the same boat. I don't know. Yeah, I I love that Noel was just like I am of the opinion that I have no clue. <laughs> like, why are you asking me? And she's the one that probably knows most intimately what her mom went through, other than herself, as spending time working mm-hmm. with her through it as a licensed therapist. So. It's just, it's kind of cool that somebody who knows her mom that well and with that degree of education can be like, I have no clue. Yeah. And that's okay. And and faith is okay. And it can be really good. And it can be really bad. And that's just how it is. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, um, I'd n- also never heard of Stephen Marin before never. this. No, I mean, never. I had listened to the episode of mm-hmm. that a paranormal chicks covered on this. Yes, they did a but great besides episode. Besides that, on this. no. Yeah. Um, I do have. I'm always shouting out paranormal chicks, but I loved how they broke down this story 
and did it in a way that was laughing at the ludicrousness of every event that happened because neither of them come from a background of like a faith upbringing and so when it would get to the point where they'd be like and then Stephen Moran threw his hands in the air and said praise God and then Stephen Moran dumped out the bullets of his gun Gosh. And then Stephen Marin was waving at Margie Paul like a kid going I to lost something. That. I they, lost it at that. They're like heaving, weeping, laughing. And you have to be able to do that because it's utterly ludicrous. It's just chaotic. It's so chaotic. Gross. Yes. Meanwhile, when Margie Palm told exactly what we read mm-hmm. to an audience on evangelical television shows and a radio show when she got to the point where the paranormal chicks were weeping crying laughing at the ludicrousness Mm -hmm. they erupt into applause and cheering and being like praise god praise his name yes lord like it's it's such a stark difference and i each one is equally sincere, but it mm-hmm. just shows you the difference in like when you filter everything through one particular worldview versus yeah. another, like the reaction that you have. And at this point, I think I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just so... Depending how much sleep my it children would, let honestly, me get. <laughs> this, is, this is a good wild one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. And in my mind, Margie is still in her you know she's still in her like young mom era but she's in her early 70s now and is apparently thriving and doing great and I think that's amazing and I wish all the absolute best for her and every survivor of Stephen Marin who we're we're gonna call a piece of shit whether or not he accepted Jesus or not (laughs) I know plenty of Christians who are pieces of shit, so. That will be true. Well, with that, you guys know the drill. Mm -hmm. Give us a follow on Instagram and TikTok. You can Mm -hmm. find us at Campiness Canceled. Mm -hmm. You know the drill about emailing us or DMing Mm -hmm. us directly with your case suggestions. Or, again, even if it's just telling us how you feel about a case. Yes. Um, And do leave us those five-star reviews on apple and spotify that really means a lot to Mm -hmm. us and sorry we bring it up every episode but it was recently pointed out to me by my husband that there very well may be people tuning in to our most recent episode who have listened to none of our other Mm -hmm. episodes Mm -hmm. and so when we mention please leave a review that may be the first time that they're hearing it whereas you guys who have been listening from day one that love us and support us already, you already know this, but we just got to throw it out there for people who maybe were like, wow, I think I might have found another podcast. I might want to binge listen. Yeah. Go ahead and leave us that review because it really means a lot to us. That helps us. Yes. Gives us the motivation. Yes, it really does. Uh. Because it's not easy to put this out, but we love it and we're going to continue doing it. And we've really gotten 
passionate about survivor stories. I think when you spend so much time listening to true crime, watching true crime, writing about it, it can start to feel a little repetitive when Mm -hmm. you have to talk about these types of people that have similar patterns and just end up ending the life of innocent people. And it's interesting to talk about and break down their psychology. But at the end of the day, what keeps us going and what makes us excited to get out of bed in the morning is hearing these incredible survivor stories from women, men, people that went through something and have chosen to continue to get up and do the damn thing. And in the next few weeks, we're going to have an interview with you guys that we're really excited about by a New York Times bestselling author who survived one of the craziest things we have ever had the horrible, oh, horrible, I almost said pleasure of hearing about it. <laughs> it was not pleasure whatsoever. But she also very much appreciates dark humor, so she'll know what we mean. But we're going to be having her on the show to talk about her experience of surviving a kidnapping by Somali pirates. And that is going to be something I I cannot wait for. So look for that dropping in your feed, hopefully in the month of April. That's what we're aiming for. And yeah, in the meantime... You can rest easy knowing that Stephen Marin will never con another woman again and Margie Palm is somewhere doing great. Yay. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Catch you back next Uh, week. Bye. Bye.